The Guardian. Welcome to Science Weekly. Alongside our non-COVID episodes, we're continuing to explore the science behind the outbreak. So do keep your questions coming in. Head over to theguardian.com forward slash COVID-19 questions, or one word. In today's episode, we're looking at a topic many of you have asked us about, the dreaded second wave. One particular quandary from Magdalena, a neuroscientist based in Scotland, caught our eye. She asked, until we find a vaccine, will we eventually not have the same number of severe cases over time, even with intermittent periods of lockdown? To delve into this question, I spoke to Carl Hennigan, a practicing GP and professor of evidence-based medicine at the University of Oxford. In the 202-03 SARS outbreak, what happened there is people were preparing vaccines, preparing treatments, expecting it to go into a second wave. And in July of that year, it just disappeared and dissipated. And nobody is quite clear what happened at that point with that circulating coronavirus. I'm Ian Sample, and this is Science Weekly. Hi, Carl. Um, are you working from home? Are you in the office? What's uh, what's the situation with you at the moment? Um, I have a hut in my garden, and it's been uh, renamed the COVID hut in our house. And actually, it's quite nice to be able to come out of your house, actually. And it's about 10 yards from my back door. But somehow, I still manage to be late each day, which is the worrying <laughs> bit. <laughs> Carl, a lot of countries around the world are now starting to ease up on these lockdowns, including the UK. And it's reignited or resurfaced these concerns about a potential second wave of infections as this reproduction number of the virus grows again. And that seems pretty much common sense. You know, you let people out, they start spreading the virus around again. But this idea of the waves really comes from models of past flu pandemics. Is that right? Yeah, so um, all of our thinking about second waves comes from epidemics of influenza and pandemics over the last 120 years, particularly influenced by the 1918 outbreak of Spanish flu. And what happened there is there was a natural distancing, social distancing that occurs throughout the summer, saw what we call the trough, with then a peak up into what people refer to as a second wave. But I think it's important to remember there are lots of uncertainties about that influenza data. It's not clear in that first outbreak whether it was actually influenza because there was lots of other issues going on with the war. There are only a few samples of people actually having the virus on board. But what also concerns us is that the second wave was much worse than the first wave. And that thinking then goes into a lot of planning for pandemics. But coronavirus, in its own way, is different to influenza. And there are some really interesting differences. For instance, influenza does affect young people, but it seems coronavirus doesn't. The second aspect to coronavirus is that actually it does seem to be having a marked seasonal effect in the same way that influenza does. But it isn't in April and May circulating in the same way that it was when the environment, if you like, was perfect for its transmission. And so I think over the summer, we should be more reassured that as the temperature goes up, particularly the humidity and other features change in our behaviour, such as the natural social distancing that occurs when we go outside, we won't see the same upsurge that we saw 
in February, March. However, there are things about this outbreak that have surprised me, so you can never be certain about anything that you say. Don't we have enough data from around the world for in different climates, people releasing lockdown at different times to now have a pretty good handle in terms of modeling as to what we would expect to come next, whether there's a second wave, whether that second wave is larger than the first one. What we know within all of these viruses, at some point they become seasonal. There seems to be a first attack, potentially second has only been described about five times in the last hundred years. So we can't be certain when we take that data and apply it to the future that we're going to be clear and have statements like, we know what to expect next. In the 20203 SARS outbreak, what happened there is people were preparing vaccines, preparing treatments, expecting it to go into a second wave. And in July of that year, it just disappeared and dissipated. And nobody is quite clear what happened at that point with that circulating coronavirus. There is a possibility that this coronavirus could have gone the same way. However, Seasonal circulation is important because as it goes into the Southern Hemisphere, in their June, July, when it's their winter, we may see upturns there. And it'll be incredibly interesting to watch what happens in the Southern Hemisphere. As places like Brazil go into their winter in June, although it's much more higher and warmer temperatures than what we've got, you will continue to see problems potentially in the Southern Hemisphere, which might better explain what's going to happen next. Wouldn't you only expect to see a larger second wave if the virus becomes more transmissible or perhaps more virulent? Generally, viruses want to survive and want to hang around. And to do that, they have to do things like infect you and give you mild symptoms, even asymptomatics. And I think that's what's particularly interesting and sneaky about this virus, that there are numerous reports of people walking around having had the infection and are asymptomatic. Remember, if you kill your host, you lose the ability to transmit. So it's not in the interest of the virus. And I think it's equally likely that it will become less virulent in its going forward as it tries to coexist with humans. And just to talk a little bit about the reasons for a second peak... I presume it's as simple as the fact that the virus is still out there. And so as we become more sociable, as we move out of our homes and flats, we are then become more ready targets. Is it essentially as simple as that? Well, all the modelling works on a sort of average effect that as you intermingle and meet more, that actually them gatherings will lead you to more exposures and more timing of the exposure that increases your potential to be infected. But I think that oversimplifies the issue. For instance, we've seen with this event that there have been super spreading events, and there are certain features that seem to make that more likely than less likely, particularly if you're in densely packed environments, dormitories, care homes, for instance, even hospitals. So certain environments make it more likely to spread the disease than others. So I don't think we can say just as a feature or a function of doing more 
and being out there more, it's as straightforward as the R note goes from one to three. We have to understand which bits interrupt the transmission. So for instance, hand washing and the encouragement of social distancing did have a significant impact on the spread of acute respiratory infections. So once you understand that, you want to understand what other features now really make a difference. Is it sporting events, large events, for instance? Is it secondary schools? Is it primary schools? Because what you want to do is understand how to mitigate the risks as opposed to suppress them. What are the sort of early warning systems we can have for this second outbreak if it's to come? And certainly there seem to be vast sources of data now coming available, such as the you know, uh, virus testing, serological testing, things like Google movement, mobility, you know, mapping Facebook data. Is that going to be useful in giving us an early warning that, OK, look, this is taking off now? Well, I think the first thing is to say the amount of evidence and data that's come with COVID-19 has been overwhelming. If you try to keep up to date, it's like a constant battle to understand what's going on. That data exists in isolation. And actually, you need to know where to go. And that's almost half the battle of being an epidemiologist in all this. Where is the data? But once you bring that all together, you can really get a good picture of what's happening. You can then regionalise it. And that's important as we come out of this lockdown. Because I don't really talk about second waves. What I talk about is sporadic outbreaks. This is where you get concerned. Somebody walks in the country, for instance, goes in a dormitory, I can see it now in a hostel, and then suddenly there's an outbreak of 10, 20 people with the infection. The countries that managed it well have a strategy for testing and tracing those people and isolating them. That's a sort of South Korea model. And I am pretty sure that's one of the key things we have to get right to be able to next year, or whenever these sporadic outbreaks occur, we manage them much better. But they have to be done on a local basis. And I think there's a lot talked about contact tracing and there's been a lot about the apps. But what people are forgetting is it's a human interaction contact tracing. It's about building relationships. That's where you need public health teams and people who understand what's going on in their local area and can create them relationships to make sure people isolate themselves. And are there other specific things that you would do um, to avoid the idea of a, a second wave, particularly in the winter when hospitals are going to be busy with, with, with flu and other sort of seasonal illnesses? Yeah, so number one is I'd take an evidence-based approach on the way out of lockdown. And that means as we do certain features now, like, for instance, we open primary schools, we should be collecting the data on transmission from children to teachers to try and see, does that have an impact? And if it does, understand the magnitude of that impact. So next time we can understand if it's very low, we might not have to school, shut primary schools, which has been a strategy in other countries. But in some countries, we just blankets shut everywhere because we don't know what's happening. Two is we need a different approach for intermediate care for many people, particularly the elderly and the vulnerable. Many of these don't need to go into the large, big hospitals. They could go into community hospital facilities that can give them the right supportive measures, such as rehydration, can give them oxygen, 
and nutrition that can actually help them through this virus. So then sorts of features are incredibly important to get in place now. And I'd be talking about now a sort of 100 day uh, plan, because as we move into autumn, these things have to be in place so that we've got this strategy. Economically, I do not think we'll be able to go into suppression again. And also, austerity has a significant impact on the population's health and well-being. Carl, you've had a lot of recommendations, a lot of thoughts on what we could do better, what we could learn, how we could prepare for different eventualities in the future. And before I let you go, I would love to get your sense of how confident you are that this has been a shock enough to actually result in action once we are in a position to act, once we're not in this sort of emergency firefighting mode. What, are you confident about that? That's a, an interesting question. I'd like to think this has been enough of a shock for us to radically think different about what we do next and how we go about it. Am I confident? No. And it depends what happens next and how much we're prepared to learn the lessons. Potentially, if we get to July and August, and all, and this is dissipating, people might just get so much relief, they're thankful to get on with normal life and leave all of this behind. However, from an epidemiological and an evidence-based way, there are so many important issues for us to look at, and I'm confident many of the research groups around the world will try and resolve some of these questions and, and help the thinking. And so uh, I, I'd like to be confident but it's a bit tinged with pessimism in there. But there are some features here that are very clear. And I think this is important. There has already begun a, a blame game and a political blame game. And one of the problems with that approach is that everybody gets defensive and there becomes an inability for people to say, we made errors, we understood we made errors, and our job is to fix them. And so what I try to do is spend a lot of time thinking about the evidence what are the problems and what are the solutions? And some of them are short term, like the last of testing was could have been something we didn't get our act together quick enough. But some of the structural problems are long term, for instance, social care. And that's been going on for 20 plus years now that we've seen reductions in the money going into social care, money going into care homes. And so when they're underfunded, it is not surprising to me they have problems with infection because people who work in there are not paid very well. There are not enough of them and they are very high risk of infection. And therefore, we should be radically rethinking now, how do we prioritise nursing care homes? And if we don't do that, we're all going to be paying the cost in another year or two when we go back into suppression. Well, maybe that's all the motivation we should be needing. Carl, thank you so much for joining us on this. I really appreciate it. It's great to hear your thoughts on all of this. You're welcome. Thanks again to Carl. And also thanks to you, our listeners. At a time when advertising revenues and subscriptions to newspapers are falling, but the need for open journalism is more apparent than ever before, we appreciate your support. To help make sure our journalism stays open during this crisis and beyond, visit gu.com forward slash support podcasts. As always, stay safe and see you back here soon.
for more great podcasts from The Guardian, just go to theguardian.com slash podcasts.